Episode 1. Engine Start Procedure. Fire Guard. Post if available. Rotor blades. Clear and untied. Auto manual switch. Check auto. Caution. Do not attempt to start if battery volts are less than 21 volts. Throttle. Open to idle detent. Caution. If turbine gas temperature does not begin to rise by 18% NG, abort the start. Start switch. Press for two seconds, then release. October 2012. It blew my mind. I was the person who struggled the most when it came to learning how to hover. I spent hours watching YouTube videos of helicopter pilots hovering, praying that the next day on the flight line it would all click, that I would finally find that sweet spot that all of my flight school buddies had already found. As I sat in my car months later looking at congratulatory text message after text message, I couldn't believe that our cadre just announced that I would be the distinguished honor graduate of my flight school class. Apparently, those weeks of struggling to learn how to hover motivated me through the following onslaught of in-class and in-cockpit testing. A quick phone call home to my ever-realistic mother tempered my enthusiasm as she reminded me, well, you might be the best in your class, but you probably aren't the best in the world. Thanks, Mom. After graduation and a celebratory dinner with my roommates, I packed all of my belongings and moved to Tennessee. My new home would be with 717 Cavalry Regiment under the 159th Combat Aviation Brigade. My airframe of choice, the Kiowa Warrior, meant I was joining the Air Cavalry. I started checking all of the blocks I'd been told to check as a young cadet and flight school student. I studied hard to pass my 5 and 9 emergency procedures test. I trusted my platoon sergeant, made friends with the other lieutenant in my troop, and led my platoon at PT. I learned all of the intricacies of how each boss wanted their PowerPoint slides presented and just how important dental readiness is to the Army. I did a spur ride and broke in my Stetson. I learned Fiddler's Green and the history behind our squadron slogan, Death Rides. I worked hard, stayed late, and did everything I could to prove just how good of an officer I was. 159th, the combat aviation brigade I was in, was set to deploy the beginning of 2014. A combat aviation brigade is made up of multiple battalions of different kinds of helicopters. There's an air assault battalion of Blackhawks, an attack battalion of Apaches, and a general support battalion of Blackhawks and Chinooks. Then, of course, is the Kiowa Squadron. Originally, our entire aviation brigade was meant to deploy, but word came down in mid-2013 that changes were being made to that plan. There were different courses of action, but almost all of them included some reduction or removal of our squadron from the mission. Almost everyone in the unit had already deployed. If you looked around a conference room at any meeting or squadron function, almost everyone had a patch on the right sleeve of their uniform. That patch showed they deployed. It was their combat patch. I was one of only a few in the unit with what they called a slick sleeve on my right arm, and I hated it. I was chomping at the proverbial bit as the opportunity to go downrange felt like it was slipping through my fingers. 
The decision was eventually made that only one of the three troops with aircraft would deploy from our squadron, Alpha Troop. At the time, I was assigned to the maintenance troop, which would only deploy a small maintenance package, and as a non-wrench-turning lieutenant, I was not on the priority list of people to send. But Alpha Troop was looking to bring in two new platoon leaders, as the guys in those slots had been there long enough. I went to my troop commander a bit sheepishly, but asked if he could help me get on the deployment. I wanted to go. I wanted to be an Alpha Troop platoon leader. Despite how much I often loathed feeling the responsibility to go to the office a few hours on the weekend and how much I hated staying late on Fridays to work out problems with senior leaders, those efforts paid off. My troop commander approached the squadron commander and put in a good word for me, a word that moved me to Alpha Troop a few weeks later to begin preparing for war. The 2014 deployment, if taken in comparison to other deployments in other decades or other locations, was rather tame. There were certain units that we knew would always find a way to engage with the enemy, and we loved supporting their operations. Those were the exciting days. The exciting minutes, really. The things that felt most important. Most days, though, well, most days were spent looking for ground guys to support or looking for ways to entertain ourselves when the weather was bad. But I came home with an air medal and a combat action badge and a pilot-in-command designation on my file. Most importantly, I had a patch on my right arm. All of my guys came back home to their families relatively whole. What went unrecognized in my life until several years later was the most significant, life-altering event of that deployment. It was a self-inflicted wound at the hands of the machine I served. Halfway through our time downrange in April of 2014, the official announcement came out that the Army would divest itself of the OH-58 Delta Kiowa Warrior. According to the plan, the Army needed to make significant cuts to its budget, and the best way to do that was to rid itself of the oldest, least advanced airframes. Given that the Kiowa had been in service since Vietnam, although had gone through several upgrades in the following decades, it was on the chopping block along with the training airframes used at Fort Rucker. In addition to getting rid of these older fleets of aircraft, our entire combat aviation brigade would shut down. Not only would we lose our airframe, but we'd lose our higher command as well. At the time, I knew this was a significant revelation for some of my more senior warrant officers. They'd been Kiowa cavalrymen for a while, and for some of them, they were just a few years away from retirement. Losing the airframe, which was planned to happen early the next year, put a lot of question marks around their future careers. Losing our unit meant there would be no home for us at Fort Campbell, and in short order, we'd all be moving. Soon after the divestiture announcement came the transition plan. Aviation is a different kind of beast than a normal army unit. In normal army units, there are a handful of officers and a large number of enlisted soldiers. But in aviation, units are mostly comprised of warrant officers. Warrant officers are highly specialized soldiers. They need to be tactically and technically proficient like an enlisted soldier, but have the complex decision-making abilities that tend to land more on the shoulders of officers in normal units. Warrant officers make up the majority of pilots in the Army and fly basically their entire careers. 
Human Resources Command announced that it would hold boards to determine which Kiowa warrant officers and which Kiowa maintainers would be retrained in another airframe. So, we began preparing board files, reviewing records, and signing evaluation reports a little early to get them in for consideration. I tried my best to prepare them well for this opportunity, to have a plan for the future. The board convened and we all waited with bated breath for some announcement. By the time we got home that fall, the first list of selections for transitions came out. I had to call all of my guys to give them the news, good or bad. You got a transition or you aren't on the list. I didn't want them to hear it from anyone else but me. Regardless of whether or not someone got an airframe transition, our squadron was moving forward with lightning speed to shut down. We turned in all of our equipment and flew our aircraft to Arizona to the affectionately named Bone Yard. It's where all good airplanes go to die. All the while, there was never an official announcement about transitions for commissioned officers. I talked to my Human Resources Command personnel manager, asking if a transition was even a remote possibility. The response was, make it to the career course and we'll see what happens. I spent a lot of time wondering what I could have done differently to show that I was a competent and capable officer and pilot. I'd done everything the Army asked me to do and did it to the best of my ability. If they weren't going to offer me an airframe transition at the beginning of the divestiture, I was rather sure they weren't going to offer me one in a year or two. It was clear. There was no future for me in Army aviation. I'd have to go back to Fort Rucker for my next professional development course and apparently gain any sort of clarity. It didn't sound like much of a plan to me. Several of the officers a year group or two ahead of me decided that getting out was the next best option. An Army career wasn't the end-all be-all, and graduate school seemed like a good next step. At the time, we were a downsizing force, pushing people out left and right. So when these officers started submitting requests to be released from their active duty service obligations, Human Resources Command approved them all. People were getting out with two and three years left on their commitments to pursue their next best plans. I didn't know what I wanted to do next, and I figured I could just try one more thing in the Army before I gave it all up. I decided to pursue a branch transfer into civil affairs. It would be another year or so of training, but the good news was I'd be moving into a career field at the right time. Civil Affairs took officers from all branches before their career courses, which was right where I was. So I assessed into the program and in August of 2015 reported to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. After a little more than a year in the course, I broke my wrist and was forced to step out of the phase of training I was in. I reported to the holding company every morning for accountability, sat in a room and waited for some mundane task like washing windows or sweeping hallways to pop up and occupy my time. I read a lot of books, did some online training, and waited. While I waited, the 2016 elections began in earnest. While I waited, I began doubting in earnest. I doubted that this new path was the right one for me. I doubted that this was the mission I wanted to pursue, and I doubted that civilian life would be less fulfilling or less exciting than the Army. I doubted that civil affairs was the best choice and began contemplating what life might offer outside of uniform. 
I started daydreaming about law school, something I'd always wanted to pursue, and I started talking to family and friends about potential future careers. All the while, I paid little attention to the firestorm brewing between Republicans and Democrats. After much contemplation and a real sense of peace, I decided that my time in the military was over. So I submitted my first request to be released from active duty service in October of 2016. Because of my flight training and my brief stint in the Civil Affairs Training Program, I had an active duty service obligation that required I stay in until August 2nd of 2019. But I'd seen waivers granted before, and quite a few of them, some for a few years and some for just a month or two. I requested a two-and-a-half-year waiver so that I could start law school the following fall. It was a quick return. My request was disapproved, the justification reading, approval at this time was considered not to be in the best interest of the Army. My heart was broken. I felt like I'd made a pretty strong case for why I was the perfect candidate for this kind of waiver request. And I was also frustrated. I was an aviation officer without an airframe. I wasn't competitive for promotion, and so the writing was on the wall for me. My quote-unquote career in the Army was over. This waiver would just help me get on with my life a little bit sooner. I submitted a second request, asking for a one-year waiver, and provided the acceptance letters I'd gotten to begin law school in 2017. The second request was also denied, and not surprisingly, the third as well. The truth is that I'd been forced to reconcile with the idea that for better or worse, the Army and the military at large is not, in fact, immune to the meat grinder of political will. I've spent my entire career doing my best to remain apolitical. I've tried focusing instead on protecting and defending the Constitution, which we swear to do. In fact, I've never even voted. (laughs) That's how apolitical I've tried to be. What I failed to understand is that regardless of whether or not I chose to play a role in the political machine, the political machine would most certainly play a role in my life. I'd picked, perhaps, the worst possible moment to ask the Army for any favors, because in 2016 we were just one entity being affected by a huge swing of the political pendulum. We'd go from a drastically downsizing force to a drastically increasing force in a matter of months. Whatever little part of the pie I represented in someone's PowerPoint slide about Army aviation, that representation suddenly became very important. I don't mean to be critical of the theory behind the military being subservient to civilian governance. It's an incredibly important principle to uphold, and I value it deeply. This ideal is what protects us from the whims of the general with the most stars and ensures that whatever political policies are enacted by elected leaders, they're the policies that are then enacted by the military. Serving the political will while remaining apolitical, though, I don't know, that's a sacrifice I think few people understand. There are certain things we know that we'll sacrifice when we choose to don the uniform. We knowingly sacrifice time with family in order to deploy near and far, to combat theaters and training exercises. We sacrifice stability, opting instead for a vagabond lifestyle of moving every three years or so. We sacrifice quick promotions, accepting that we can't really do much to fast-track a pretty staunch system of checked boxes on a fixed career timeline. 
We have a lot of freedoms we relinquish when we come on board to serve. And I've been fortunate to grow up in the area of people thanking us for our service and thanking us for the sacrifice. But there is one other less obvious sacrifice that I've come to realize is the most difficult pill to swallow. We sacrifice choices. At the end of the day, no matter how much the Army may tell you they care about soldiers and their families, that care and concern can only extend so far. It can only extend as far as the political establishment is willing to allow it to, and by proxy the tide of public will the political establishment answers to. And so, for a variety of different reasons and in a variety of different ways, we lose the ability to choose. I lost my ability to choose the day the decision was made to divest the Army of the finest reconnaissance platform it's ever had. The Army made a decision it thought was best, and in some ways tried to stop the hemorrhaging we all felt happening. I'd tried to work hard enough and be good enough to retain all of my options, but in one fail swoop, they all went flying out the door. And then, with the tide that turned politically in 2016, I lost any choice I had to leave. I've tried for a long time to not be bitter about the whole endeavor. Some days it's easy to talk about, but some days when people start asking questions, I just have to stop them. It can be really painful to have lost a dream. What hurts most, though, is to read that phrase written on a piece of paper three times. Approval at this time was considered not to be in the best interest of the Army. In the end, the Army ended up approving my release 30 days early. I started school August 9th and will graduate in 2022 if all goes according to plan. I have to stop myself sometimes from going down the rabbit hole of, well, if they'd let me out early, I could have graduated this year. It's not healthy to think about, but I'd be lying if I said it doesn't crop up from time to time. I've wanted to tell this story for a while. I've tried to write essays about it, but they all end up just as these self-aggrandizing or pity party pieces that don't do a whole lot for me in the end. For the podcast, though, at first, I hope to put together some sort of like salacious expose about the mismanagement of the whole divestiture, kind of call the army out for its failings and stupidity. It might have made me feel better for a little bit, but when I started doing the research from that angle, I swear I started getting an ulcer. It made me mad, just like really really mad. Then I thought telling the sob story of what the divestiture did to all of these incredible pilots that flew the Kiowa, I thought that was a decent angle. I thought I'd call some of my old guys and ask them to tell me how mad they are or how much losing the Kiowa ruined everything for them. But I knew that would only be part of their story. They've mostly moved on, trained in new airframes, had new babies, moved closer to family. To ask them to join in my pity party all these years removed would be kind of unfair. Originally, I wanted to name this series Killing the Kiowa, because that's how it felt to me. It felt like this intentional, singular entity came and killed the Kiowa. But in reality, no one person or entity should bear the brunt of that blame. This was a decision decades in the making. The Kiowa was never meant to last as long as it did, and the reasons it ended up in the boneyard aren't really all that important. The fact is that the Kiowa lived. 
It lived a long and storied life, one that I got to be a small part of. So we're calling this series The Death of the Kiowa, because in the end, death is the natural conclusion to life. In this series, we'll touch on some of those things that led to its death, some of the circumstances surrounding the Army's need to cut its budget, its need to modernize, its need to focus on the future. We'll touch on those things, but we won't spend a whole lot of time there. More importantly, we will hear from the people that got to be a part of the life of the Kiowa. We'll talk to those of us that flew it and those of us that watched it fly. We'll hear stories about how it saved the good guys, killed the bad guys, and on the really, really hard days, couldn't save or kill anyone. I hope that in the telling of the death of the Kiowa, people who knew nothing about it learn a little bit about what it means to be an air cavalryman. I hope that for those of us who loved it and lived with it, feel a little bit of peace knowing that none of us will forget it. I was part of the 7th Squadron, 17th Cavalry Regiment. We were known as Pale Horse, and our motto was Death Rides. It comes from the passage in Revelation that reads, And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him was Death, and Hell followed with him. All of the pilots you'll hear from in the following episodes, save one, I met in 717. We wore Stetsons and Spurs, And at the end of our meetings, or when we saluted higher-ranking officers, we said, Death Rides. I hope you'll join me, these cavalrymen, and the rest of our members of society as we begin the special series, The Death of the Kiowa.